Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Episode 425 of The Bowery Boys. It happened in Madison Square Park. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And in today's show, we are correcting an oversight in the Bowery Boys podcast collection, Greg. Mm -hmm. Over the years, we have discussed the history of so many public spaces, so many squares and parks in New York City, you know, from Times Square to Columbus Circle to Herald Square, Union Square. Bryant Park, Prospect Park, even Flushing Meadows. We love parks on this show. You can find <laughs> all of those shows, including Washington Square Park, in our back catalog. But for some reason, which we have not figured out, <laughs> we skipped over Madison Square Park, located between Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue on 23rd Street. Well, today we're giving it some love. We are fixing this oversight. The park was really at the heart of Gilded Age New York. Whether you were, you know, rushing to an upscale restaurant like Delmonico's or a night of theater, or maybe just an evening at one of New York's hottest hotels. For about five or six decades, Madison Square Park was the epicenter of New York City culture. And the evidence is all around this area today. The park is surrounded by some of New York's most renowned architecture, from the Flatiron Building to the Campanile-inspired Metropolitan Life Tower, which was once known as the tallest building in the world. Mm. The park also lends its name, of course, to one of the most famous sports and performing venues in the world, Madison Square Garden. Which today is no longer located anywhere near the park, but we'll get into that in a little mm -hmm. bit. But after living large during the Gilded Age, Madison Square Park had a bit of a tough run during the second half of the 20th century. It fell into disrepair and even developed a dangerous reputation by the early 1990s. But it's a very different story today. And in fact, the area has again become so trendy that the streets north of the park have developed into its own historically protected micro-neighborhood called Nomad, or North of Madison. Today's surroundings, in fact, probably have more in common with the 1870s than they do 
with the 1970s. <laughs> so today we're bringing you glamour and architecture and sports and scandal. We're bringing you drama, dolls, even dogs, Greg, dogs, mm-hmm. as, <laughs> as we explore all that happened in Madison Square Park. All right, I am excited. This already feels like a kind of retro show for us. We're going really back to the basics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tom, then, in that frame of mind, would you like to situate us, please? Mm -hmm. You know, we've just talked about Madison Square Park, like everyone knows where it's located. But you do the honors today. With pleasure. We are talking today about Madison Square in Manhattan, which contains Madison Square Park which is a lovely 6.2-acre leafy oasis that today contains, you know, winding paths and grassy lawns, several monuments, rows of park benches, usually some kind of an art installation Uh is happening, and yes, also a very popular Shake Shack. Believe it or not, that Shake Shack is historic itself. It's true. We'll get to that. (laughs) Now, the square is bordered by East 26th Street to the north and East 23rd to the south, and on its eastern edge by Madison Avenue and along its western edge by Fifth Avenue. And there is a little bit of Broadway where Uh it cuts through the southwest corner of the square, sort of snipping off a little triangle. So this is where Broadway intersects with Fifth Avenue and 23rd Street. Mm -hmm. We know that where Broadway hits all of these avenues, breaking up the grid plan, it makes for some very interesting little triangular plazas. Right. Most of which were then developed into squares, you know, or at least into some kind of interesting plaza, like Union Square or Herald Square. Most famously, Times Square. (laughs) Even Columbus Circle, you know, where Broadway hits 8th Avenue. Doesn't Mm -hmm. get a whole lot of love, but still, that's Broadway (laughs) hitting an avenue. But before we had a grid plan here in Manhattan, before the commissioner's plan of 1811, what sat here? Well, way back, you know, before the European settlers arrived, this was a Lenape hunting ground. It was covered in trees and vegetation, And then in the early New Amsterdam days, the area would be mostly farmland and sort of, you know, sandy and swampy fields. Today's square, that area, was crossed from east to west by a stream that was called Cedar Creek. Hmm. And by about 1680, all of the land on today's western edge of Madison Square was actually owned by a formerly enslaved man named Solomon Peters. It had been granted to him by Sir Edmund Andros, who was the British governor of New York in 1680, for whom he worked. The author Christiane Bird writes about this in her 2022 book, A Block in Time, A New York City History at the Corner of 23rd and 5th Avenue. Wow. So this is going way back, long before the blocks were laid out, of course. Yeah. He owned what would be the whole western side? Yes. His farm plot stretched 30 acres from what is today 21st Street up to 26th Street and from Broadway all the way west to between 6th and 7th Avenue. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that whole western side of the square itself and, you know, so much more. 
And then next to it, on the site of the, you know, the inside of today's park, much of that land was given over to the city by the British in 1686 in the Dungan Charter, which we really don't talk enough about on the show, Greg. But (laughs) this was a charter that included land in the middle of the island from 23rd Street all the way up to about 90th Street. So the city then leased a lot of that land out to farmers who mostly let their animals graze here, you know, in the middle of the island. How did people from New York, which was, you know, very far away, how did they even get to this area? Well, there were roads and paths, you know, that headed up here. In 1703, along the edge of the Peters property, the city made one of these old paths into a new road uh, that led northwest up to the village of Bloomingdale at today's 114th Street. And they called this road the Bloomingdale Road. And that road goes by another name today, Broadway. Yes. But where did Bloomingdale Road start? Amazingly, right here at 23rd and 5th. But the Peters family sold off their land then in 1716, by which time, as Bird writes in her book, Times had changed, and new racist laws called the the Black Code of 1712 now made it illegal for the Peters family to legally pass their property on to their own children. And so they sold it to a man named John Horn and his brother-in-law. And the Horn family then would hold on to this land for a couple of generations, and they would build a a large home, a a homestead, really, for themselves, just south of the intersection of today's 23rd and 5th Avenue. So their home was basically, you know, basically stood in the middle of today's 5th Avenue. So I can imagine things got a little awkward for homeowners, although maybe lucrative for some homeowners, as the commissioner's plan of 1811 came along, which carved up most of Manhattan Island into streets and avenues. Mm -hmm. But also in that plan, there just weren't a lot of public spaces, surprisingly. not Certainly not that many parks. No, well, with the exception of a very large parade ground that was in the plan, that in that 1811 plan covered an enormous space, 275 acres, including land right here. I mean, this parade ground was huge. It was supposed to cover all of the land between 23rd and 34th streets and between 3rd and 7th avenues. They wanted this, you know, parade ground for military training and obviously also to give, you know, residents a nice place to stroll. But the city couldn't afford to buy up all that land. And so they had to shrink it down three years later. They went from 275 acres down to 90 and renamed it Madison Square Park, named for President James Madison. Madison, who was president at that very same time. That's right. Actually, that's interesting. So did you say the park was 90 acres? Today it's just six Right. 90 acres was the plan on paper, but as you pointed out, it was still way too costly for the city. So, in 1828, the city cut this planned park way down to only 6.8 acres, which is roughly the size of the square today. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the park didn't actually exist yet, right? It's still very conceptual. (laughs) It's on paper. Right. So, when did they actually 
you know, clear the land and build it. Well, it wouldn't officially open as a park for another 20 years or so, but there already was a military arsenal located on this space at about today's 5th Avenue and 24th Street inside mm-hmm. where the park is today. And east of that was a potter's field at the time in which many poor New Yorkers had been buried prior to 1797 at which point they opened up a newer potter's field down the island in today's Washington Square. But that arsenal then, in the 1820s, as the city was, you know, pulling together its plans for this future park, that arsenal would be converted into the New York House of Refuge, which was a a home for boys and girls, which would stand there until it burned down in 1839. But it would be rebuilt just like in a different area down by the East River. That's right. So as all of this was happening, both Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenues were being laid out and opened up on both sides of the park. Now, Fifth had been staked out by the commissioner's plan, um, but this stretch hadn't actually opened until 1837. And Madison Avenue, it wasn't even in the commissioner's plan, but it was added to the grid and it was opened in 1836 and named after the fourth U.S. president, James Madison, of course, who had died that year in 1836. Thanks to the commissioner's plan, the house was now in the middle of Fifth Avenue. Right, It couldn't just stay in the middle of Fifth Avenue, and they couldn't build around it. Well, actually, for a little while, you know, it did stay there with horse-drawn traffic just kind of swerving around it. Oh. but And that was happening all over the island. Mm-hmm. But finally, in 1839, it would be rolled up to the corner of 23rd and Fifth Avenue facing the, the Bloomingdale Road, or today's Broadway. I am always amazed when we get to a part of the history where you start rolling buildings <laughs> by logs. So they, they they put this building on logs and they just rolled it. Just gave it a push. <laughs> it was a whole business. We should we we definitely need to do a show on that. Wow. Um but the the Horn family then rented out this old home in the eighteen forties to a man named William Thompson, who then converted it into a tavern that he called Madison Cottage. And this cottage was actually quite well known as this kind of stopping over place for travelers as they were heading into and out of town, you know, Mm because this wasn't really in New York City yet, really. You could grab a drink here and even a bed for the night. Yes, according to the book Incredible New York, High Life and Low Life of the Last Hundred Years by Lloyd Morris, the tavern had posted a few rules on the wall, including a sign that stated, quote, no more than five people to sleep in one bed. Hmm. (laughs) Interesting rule. (laughs) What happened at Madison Cottage? (laughs) Stayed Stayed. at Madison's Cottage. (laughs) Underscoring, though, just how north of the city, you know, this was at this point. Yes, even though the city was quickly catching up and, and moving up around it. And throughout the 1830s, the city was finally spending the money to drain the old streams in the park and and level out the land and then fence it in. And finally, the Madison Square Park opened in May 1847. So finally, we have a park. But what's happening around it? Because by then, this is a 
big decade for New York City. The population is greatly increasing by the 1840s. Yeah, 1840s, 1850s, these, you know, boom times for the economy and for the population due to Americans, you know, migrating to the city for jobs and, of course, foreigners immigrating to New York, especially Irish and Germans at the time. So New York City went from a population of about 312,000 in 1840 to 515,000 in 1850. And as we have covered in many other shows, residents who could move up the island away from all that hustle and bustle and industry did so. So by the time that the park officially opened in 1847, most of the plots surrounding the park were residences. Turning this former pasture and farmland into a normal neighborhood, even slightly upscale by this point, and getting pretty busy, I might add. In part, yes, thanks to the new Madison Square Depot that opened in 1845 on its northeast corner between Madison and 4th Avenue, or Park Avenue, and between 26th and 27th Streets. That depot belonged to the New York and Harlem Railroad, whose passengers could come down the east side of Manhattan, you know, and from Harlem and the Bronx, down to 32nd Street, where they would then transfer to horse carriages and continue down to this depot at 26th Street. And then from there, they could, you know, continue down the island on horse cars. And I would say that this block that you're talking about with the depot on it Mm -hmm. is very important to our story. So remember this block. Put your flag in it. So we've got commuters and also residents living in brownstones that are being constructed, walking through the park, heading downtown to jobs via horse and carriage. Yes, and we we also have other institutions that are opening around the park, you know, and nearby blocks to serve these locals, like all the churches that opened in the 1850s alone, including the lovely little church around the corner, the Church of the Transfiguration on 29th Street, and the nearby Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth Avenue, and of course, the Madison Square Presbyterian Church, which was designed by Richard Upjohn in the Gothic Revival style and opened on the park at Madison and 24th Street in 1854. But I've also read that the locals made some sports history even around this time. Ah, yes. You mean when some neighborhood residents came together at an empty lot on Madison and 27th Street in 1842 to form the Knickerbocker Baseball Club. And as the New York (laughs) Times pointed out recently, they played a variation of several English ball games, including Rounders, the game Rounders, and their leader, a man named Alexander Cartwright, helped codify the rules of their game into something that resembled modern baseball. Wow. So in another reality, a huge baseball stadium might have opened (laughs) on the spot, but the Knickerbockers could only play here for a few years because, you know, these vacant lots were going fast. They lost their lot. They had to move their game over to Hoboken. But by the end of the 1850s, with the city's population surging, Madison Square Park started to feel, you know, a little bit like the park that we know today. It got its first monument in the 1850s, just actually outside its gates. The Worth Monument, which is a 51-foot-tall granite obelisk 
that is above the grave of Major General Jenkins Worth, who was a war hero. And the monument still stands there today on the western side of Fifth Avenue near 25th Street. But there was also something else happening here in Madison Square in the 1850s. Greg, remember Madison Cottage at the corner of 23rd and 5th? But that's like, what, five to six people on the bed rule? Yeah, so, whatever. <laughs> no more than five. <laughs> no, no more, more than, than five. five. Okay, all right. Well, in 1852, it was demolished and replaced by an impressively large arena and a, a show place called Franconi's Hippodrome. Oh, I love the era of hippodromes. We don't have enough hippodromes <laughs> in our lives. No. Franconi staged elaborate spectacles. Like, that is what a hippodrome is for, right? Oh, with enormous casts, right, of, of humans and animals. I mean, we're talking like elephants. They staged chariot races, and it could seat 10,000 people. I found an ad in the Daily Herald on August 7th, 1854, Franconi's Hippodrome, Fine Athletic Exhibition. They were advertising a half-mile race around the track that they were holding. That was six times around the track and handing out cash prizes of $40, $20, and $10 to the fastest runners. That's like $1,500 for first place. So this is like a major attraction yeah. here. This is huge. By the way, I don't even know if I could make it around the track six times, by the way. <laughs> you could for $1,500. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe you would rather just buy a ticket, you know, to witness... What happened before the race, which was a, quote, magnificent entertainment embracing vivid illustrations of the classic games, thrilling representations of the manly sports of the chase, together with a full program of all the other daring splendors of the Hippodrome. Greg, I think they're talking about some sort of Olympic-themed manly tableau vivant that was taking place. So a bit like a 19th century Busby Berkeley going on here at Madison Square. <laughs> I'm thinking pure tableau vivant. That's what that's okay. what I want. I want okay. Olympic tableau. But the advertisement also reminds us of something else. Seats in the boxes went for 50 cents, while seats in the quote colored boxes went for 26 cents. We can't overlook the fact that while black and white audiences may have attended together, they still had segregated seating. And that would continue for many decades in the city, of course. But this Franconi's Hippodrome sounds like a very expensive operation to run. Yeah, it turns out that Hippodromes are really expensive to run, if you're not Caesar Augustus. <laughs> so Franconi's closed after two years and would soon be replaced by something much more, shall we say, hospitable. We'll get to Madison Square in the Gilded Age after this. Tune in to For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's fascinating podcast on the rich and complex history of the United States. Join host David M. Rubenstein for a two-part look into the life and times of John Quincy Adams. Adams was the son of a founding father, with a political career that lasted until his death in 1848. He was also one of the last links between the founding generation and the United States of the 19th century. In this special two-part conversation, the author of John Quincy Adams' Militant Spirit, 
James Traub, joins host David M. Rubenstein to explore the origin of Adam's political career, bridging a connection between his childhood and college years to the start of his career in diplomacy, against the backdrop of his father's presidency. And in part two, Traub discusses Adam's ascendance to the White House, his numerous achievements and failures in office, his stewardship of American foreign policy, and his continuous dedication to a code of ethics beyond the desire for re-election. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. So you left us with a proper park. Finally, surrounded by light residential development, but things were about to go heavily upscale here. But New York, which was once contained down at the tip of Manhattan Island, was growing northward. And Madison Square had the fortune of being right next to Fifth Avenue, which by the mid-19th century, as we've you know spoken about in countless shows, was the spine of New York high society, you know, lined mm-hmm. with the mansions of the most wealthy New Yorkers. And that was crawling northward up the island, so that by the 1860s, they had finally made it to the area around Madison Square. Mm-hmm. So by the time of the Civil War, the north side of the park was lined with brownstones. As you mentioned, they were popping up already, and they were all uniform in design, as brownstones in New York often are. But there was one interesting and exceptional home just south of that depot, the six-story mansion of one Leonard Jerome. 
the financier known as the King of Wall Street and the business partner of Cornelius Vanderbilt, who, of course, owned the depot. Right. And we should add that Leonard Jerome was the father of Jenny Jerome and thus the grandfather of Winston Churchill. (laughs) Yes, that's some notable context to add here. That's right. But this was much, much more than just a house. It had its own theater, as one does, and stables with stained glass windows, I guess, to delight the horses while they were inside. And then, of course, well, within the house, to quote Tom Miller from the website Daytonian in Manhattan, quote, The breakfast room could accommodate 70 guests, and the white and gold ballroom boasted two fountains, one spouting champagne and the other cologne. (laughs) Be be careful which one you dip your flute into. (laughs) That could be... At what? least your breath would smell nice, I guess. <laughs> yes. Wait, two, two did they really like extraordinary... drink out of the fountain? <laughs> I don't know. I can't even conceive of what these would have smelled like or looked like. This sounds like a party trick. Maybe this, I can't imagine that it was a permanent fixture of the mansion. <laughs> a, a cologne fountain. All right. Well, anyway, the house would eventually become the clubhouse of the Union League. And it's in that context that we've mentioned the Jerome Mansion on a previous show before, for this is the rumored location for the invention of the Manhattan cocktail. Wasn't that an urban legend, by the way? Um, Probably, yes. (laughs) Yes. A tasty one, we will let it go. Much tastier than cologne, by the way. But it's the so that's the official drink of Madison Square. Yes, not Cologne, the Manhattan. <laughs> but wait, we've really come far from the the story of Madison Cottage and baseball. Um, if we're already talking about mansions and cocktails, what's happened? I would say that it's not the residential homes that would make the reputation of Madison Square Park, but rather the hotels that would sweep through. In the tradition of the Madison Cottage, actually. Uh, The first major example comes in 1859 with the construction of the Fifth Avenue Hotel, which is a six-story white marble palace built upon the spot of the former Franconi's Hippodrome. Now, what's kind of innovative about this, many of the great hotels at this time were further south on Broadway, right? So it was kind of a risk for its developer, Amos Richard Eno, who was Mm -hmm. a successful merchant, who was just now diving, speculating really into the real estate craze of the time. And this was this was a risk in the mid nineteenth century because you know still many people in New York considered Twenty Third Street to be way too far north of the center yeah. of the city. You know, it was miles from Wall Street and City Hall. Who was going to stay up here? Well, a lot of people actually. It ended up being a fabulous success. In fact, it was actually geared towards the comforts of Wall Street brokers and politicians, so much so that its public rooms and dining spaces became places of wheeling, dealing, backroom deals. And in terms of its influence over the park, the hotel is important for another reason, because the Fifth Avenue Hotel also had upscale shops, both outside at street level and even inside. 
Which was, yeah, that was a pretty bold innovation. Because up until now, Fifth Avenue had been known for being mostly exclusive residences. And suddenly, here, you know, they had hat shops and chocolate shops. And, you know, there were barbers to trim your whiskers or... What shape your handlebar mustache, whatever yes. they were wearing at the time. And because the entrance of the hotel faced into this small triangular plaza, you know, mm-hmm. next to the park, there was the Worth Monument there. It created a kind of open public space where people could gather and gallivant even. Very quickly, this became a center of culture, of entertainment, really a sort of Times Square of the 1870s, you know, and soon theaters, burlesque houses, well, they even opened up here around the park. And you had other glamorous hotels like the Brunswick Hotel at the northwest corner of the park, which opened in 1864. Then the Albemarle and the Hoffman House, another major one, at Broadway and 25th, which opened in 1870. And just to underscore that these were more than hotels, more than places yes. where you went to you know, get a room for the night. They also played a part in the city and the nation's you know, political and financial and social scenes. This area, Madison Square, really became the New York hub of national politics. In fact, the Fifth Avenue Hotel was chiefly associated with Republican politicians, and the Hoffman House with Democratic politicians just on either side of this triangular plaza. Mm. In our show last year on Samuel Tilden and the presidential election of 1876, we actually discussed the political importance of Madison Square backroom politicking. Yeah, it's not an exaggeration to say that the, the course of American politics during the Reconstruction era was actually manipulated right here in these hotels on Madison Square. And so naturally, all these political shenanigans worked up quite an appetite. So all of these hotels, of course, had the absolute best restaurants. All these politicians were fed quite well. Madison Square was soon known for fine dining. Some things haven't changed. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And even New York's most famous restaurant, Delmonico's, got into the act. Now, this name, Delmonico's, they had started in Lower Manhattan and are often credited with introducing French fine dining to the United States. By the 1870s, it was the place for society to dine. And so naturally, when the Madison Square area became the domain for high society, Delmonico's had to follow opening at 5th Avenue and 28th Street in 1876 with an interior that rivaled the great banquet halls of Europe. The New York Daily Herald was there when it threw open its doors in September of that year. Quote, a steady stream of celebrities, social, plutocratic, artistic, journalistic, legal, and every other shade of professional gentlemen, including a sprinkling of the clerical, poured through the doors of the cafe and sauntered in and out, hat in hand, all over the beautiful building. The soft, yielding carpets, the costly gildings, the rich paper on the walls, the sumptuous silver service, the solid rosewood and oak paneling of the main dining room and cafe, all were admired in their turn by the visitors and old customers." 
Ah, back in the days when the soft yielding carpets merited a mention in the newspaper. Um, So all of a sudden then we've got world-class hotels and restaurants where they had just been playing baseball a few years before. Was everything around the park so fancy? Well, maybe around the park, but the actual park itself was really seen as kind of raggedy in the 1860s, you know, especially compared to that brand new spanking new Central Park that was up north, right? You couldn't compare. Mm. But by the time Delmonico's threw open its doors in the 1870s, the park had received a major redesign courtesy of a celebrated Austrian horticulturalist named Ignaz Pilat. He worked for Frederick Law Olmsted on the gardens of Central Park and then moved on to remaking pre-existing parks and parade grounds throughout the city, including Washington Square Park. And in 1870, he redesigned Madison Square Park, giving the park a more formal design, but also adding a couple fascinating features that purposefully break up the city's sometimes monotonous grid plan. And I bet, Tom, that you don't really even notice these two innovations unless you actually know where to look. Fascinating features that break up the grid. Like what exactly? So originally, he had wanted to design the park around two fountains on the north and the south ends, although only the south one would eventually be built. And on the north side today, there's actually like a reflecting pool. But imagine Mm -hmm. that's where a fountain was supposed to be, okay? But the paths towards these areas, and in fact, the pathways throughout the entire park, are all slightly curved. To quote from park historian Miriam Berman in her book, Madison Square, the park and its celebrated landmarks, quote, There were no paths to take one directly across the park. Instead, meandering and intertwining paths invited one in and gently led one around and through, giving the illusion of a park much grander in size. One would be unlikely to repeat subsequent walks in exactly the same pattern, unquote. That is so true. You can't just like cross diagonally through the park, can you? Uh-uh. you they force you, right? They <laughs> yes. force you to stroll. Yes. And the second major change specifically involves the west side of the park, where 23rd Street, 5th Avenue, and Broadway technically converge, right? That's a major intersection. Mm-hmm. From a bird's eye view, or I guess a drone's eye view today of the park, it kind of looks as though that corner of the park has been lobbed off, sort of cut off and discarded. It's because of this big intersection, which was always a traffic nightmare, and even more so in the 1860s with a sudden swell of horse-drawn carriages and omnibuses. Mm, especially as they were all trying to get to those new hot hotels yeah. and the restaurants. And there was, shall we say, very little <laughs> traffic enforcement. <laughs> Almost no traffic enforcement, really. <laughs> and so the area of the park closest to this intersection, that southwest corner in this new design, was essentially whittled away. It was widened for traffic. It creates a little bend today, which is it's still there. It's a little bend. Mm-hmm. There are no more horses and carriages here, but starting in 1918, one could catch the Uptown subway here. That is today's R&W lines. 
Ah, yes. But back to the Gilded Age, that little corner was where you would then raise your arm to hail, you know, a handsome cab. Mm-hmm. It's all just so picturesque, right? The, uh-huh. the line of horses and carriages. And we see it, you know, in some of the most romantic paintings and then later photographs that captured Gilded Age New York. It's like a perfect view of the Gilded Age right mm-hmm. here at this particular corner. And did you mention raising your arm, like yeah, hailing a, a, handsome a handsome cab or whatever? Cab, yeah. Well, the park was appropriately the home then of one of the largest arms in the world in 1876. <laughs> the right arm and torch of the Statue of Liberty mounted okay. on a pedestal. That was a hard pivot. Or that was a great... <laughs> That was quite a transition, Greg. Yeah. Um, But yes, talk about something hard to imagine. I mean, basically, the flaming torch was uh, from the Statue of Liberty was being held high above the tree line of the park, right? On the northwestern Uh end of the park. But this was obviously before it was, you know, she was mounted in New York Harbor. This arm wasn't here as a tourist attraction. Although, I should add, it was a tourist attraction. You could actually go in it. You could climb to the top of the torch for 50 cents. It was an, it was, it was a site. I mean, yes, right. Of course. But this was part of a fundraiser that the architect Frederick Bartholdi was using, you know, to drum up funds and enthusiasm, you know, for the statue itself and to ship the rest of the statue over and find it a home here in New York. So it sat here for many years. You could say that it was the fundraising arm of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> it's amusing to think of this time, you know, when the statue was not the statue, where it lacked the reverence and the symbolism that it holds today. And so some of the press were having a little fun with it. They were a little skeptical by what this was, this whole sudden erection of a stray arm in a park. <laughs> According to the New York Times, quote, The arm has been placed on a pedestal in Madison Square, where it has excited the warm admiration of the infants who infest the place. It is proposed to erect the two legs of the statue at one of the entrances of the Central Park. Persons who pass between the shadow of two titanic legs will undoubtedly be filled with all sorts of lofty emotions. But it must be confessed that a pair of detached legs, having no body or a skirt, will fail to satisfy those who insist that art should faithfully copy nature. Mm. It would probably be better to place the legs upside down in the middle of the Central Park Lake. By a little stretch of the imagination, the spectator could then fancy that Liberty had drowned herself. Oh, (laughs) come on. That is so weird. It's so weirdly, like, vicious. It almost seems sacrilegious to us today. Yes, right. Yeah. Come on. I'm sure it must have actually been quite lovely to visit Lady Liberty's arm in Madison Square in the day. And the arm was there until 1882 when it returned to Paris to be assembled, of course, into the final statue, which would then be returned in pieces, in its entirety, to New York Harbor in 1886. So imagine the scene here around the year 1880, right, at night, which we've described here, the handsome cabs, the arm of liberty, the enchanting little park paths, the hotels, the restaurants, and now add in all the visitors. 
mostly women, shoppers, in fact, who frequented the many department stores along Broadway and along 6th Avenue, this area that would become known as Ladies Mile. Truly the hustle and bustle of New York at the time, really, you know, the center of social activity in the 1880s. Next, imagine it illuminated by the harsh glow of 160-foot arc lamps Mm. high in the sky that were stretching up Broadway from Union Square here to Madison Square, where they were attached to a large generator on 25th Street, lighting up all the side streets. From the New York Times, quote, Horses, streetcars, omnibuses, and passing pedestrians were lighted up with a brilliancy which, though by no means equal to the light of day, was sufficiently strong for all practical purposes. The grouped burners in Madison Square with their rows of gas lights below and a single electric flame above, viewed from afar, suggested a circlet of golden gems surrounded by a dazzling white diamond. Unquote. Sounds enchanting. Mm-hmm. Although I think that we know, f- you know, from previous shows that those arc lights could actually make people look in reality quite sickly. That um, is not poetic, Tom. <laughs> that is well, not plus, romantic. But I guess but it's, re- it's real. Have... It's probably reality. But <laughs> well, they did have those rows of gas lights. I think That's to, true, to yeah. even it out, and everybody looks good sure, sure. in gas lights. And yet. Even with Liberty's arm and the arc lights and the theaters, the park's central attraction by this time was actually at its northeast corner over at East 26th and Madison Avenue. That would be the location of the old train depot that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Right. Now, with the opening of a new Grand Central Depot further north on 42nd Street in 1871, This depot, it wasn't needed anymore. So Mm -hmm. in steps impresario P.T. Barnum, who took the property in 1874, sort of like, you know, refitted it inside so to be kind of like an amphitheater and parked his traveling circus and museum inside the so-called Grand Roman Hippodrome. Bringing that tradition back. (laughs) I know. And that also had animals and acrobatic acts, as grand, if not more so, than Franconi's own hippodrome. Now, as we know, this was only temporary because Barnum was to soon take his show on the road, revolutionizing the American circus. And so then the space was taken up in 1875 by the band leader Patrick Gilmore. Ah, Gilmore, who is famous for writing the lyrics to that old war song, When Johnny Comes Marching Home Again. Hurrah, hurrah. And they were shouting hurrah, I imagine, when Gilmore constructed a fabulous entertainment venue here, which he then named for himself, Gilmore's Concert Gardens. Now, because he was a conductor and not a circus man like Barnum, His building was actually a step up. It was classier. Um, It was a step up architecturally. From a description in the Brooklyn Times Union, quote, Passing through the main entrance, flanked by casts of winged human-headed bulls of Assyria, the visitor passes up graveled walks through a clump of fragrant evergreens and is ushered into a scene of almost bewildering beauty. Before him stretches out a garden with serpentine walks, 
beds and banks of flowers, trees, the whole illuminated by long rows of lights spanning the great structure and shining through their globes of colored glass like arches of gems of which one reads in fairy tales, unquote. Wow. So this was literally a garden, yes. right? Back in the day, these venues were also called pleasure gardens. You know, mm -hmm. they offered both a mix of plants and flowers and park space and entertainment. So that yes. connection was obviously still strong here. Yes, in the, in the Gilded Age. And it was in Gilmore's new garden here where music mixed with sports because the venue would ho eventually host equestrian events, archery, and perhaps most notably of all, in the spring of 1877, the very first Westminster Kennel Club dog show. <gasps> so you're telling me that in 1877... We uh -huh. had the, the Statue of Liberty's arm on one side of the park at the same time as the Westminster Dog Show on the other <laughs> at Madison uh -huh. Square Garden. It's really too bad that they couldn't bring those two events together somehow. Well, actually, they kind of did. They kind of did indirectly in 1886 when the Statue of Liberty was finally dedicated in New York Harbor. And the band playing at that dedication was, of course the band of Patrick Gilmore. Oh, so there was like a, okay. a tie-in okay. at some There's point, right? Yes. So anyway, everybody by this time coming up here, they knew it as the garden, right? They called it the garden. We're going to the garden, right? Mm -hmm. So when Gilmore moved on by the late 1870s, the Vanderbilts, you know, who owned this land, of course, from the depot days, decided to keep it going. It was a good moneymaker. In fact, they would get Barnum to bring his circus back in town from time to time to perform here. But with Gilmore gone, the venue needed a new name. From the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, May 22nd, 1879. Quote, the name of Gilmore's garden has been changed to Madison Square Garden, and its appearance has been so altered as to make it unrecognizable. But even though it was heavily altered, it was still essentially that same old train depot. Pretty much up until around the year 1889, when Madison Square Garden was rebuilt from the ground up and at a very rapid pace, with a new structure befitting the grandeur of New York during the Gilded Age. This new garden, designed by Stanford White of the leading architectural firm McKim Mead & White, featured a grand 249-foot tower topped with a statue of Diana, as well as a concert hall, a swimming pool, a shopping arcade, and a roof garden. Now, we have a couple of great shows in our back catalog all about Madison Square Garden. Yes. So we really don't need to list off right now all of the 19th century sporting events and galas that happened here. But I do need to draw attention to that roof garden you mentioned and to our episode number 188 called The Murder of Stanford White because it was up on that roof garden the evening of June 25th, 1906, during a performance of Mamselle Champagne that Stanford White was murdered by Harry Thaw, due in part to White's relationship with Thaw's wife, Evelyn Nesbitt. That crime, sometimes called the crime of the century, is also often seen as the end of the Gilded Age by some people. 
it drew international attention to this corner of the park. But I'd say the park, by this point, was already entering a new phase by the early 20th century. We'll get to the things that happened in Madison Square Park in the 20th century right after this. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So you just dangled the prospect of a new phase for the park at the beginning of the 20th century. And indeed, it was a new, taller phase for the park, um, and really for much of Manhattan. Oh, yes. Here come the skyscrapers, the skyscraper race, even. It was mm -hmm. happening all over the city, fueled by new construction techniques, of course, like steel frame construction, and the development of faster passenger elevators. Yes. Taller and taller office towers were being constructed all over the city, creating a new skyline for New York. And in the the early years of the 1900s, several notable skyscrapers went up right here around the park. Like at the same time that Stanford White's second Madison Square Garden was packing in crowds across the park. So that's the landscape in which these towers are rising. Yes, exactly at the same time. Because in 1901, that funny triangular block um, that is bordered by 22nd Street, 5th Avenue, 23rd, and Broadway um, uh -huh. in the park's southwest corner, that block was sold off to the Fuller Company, a construction company that was founded in Chicago by George Fuller in the 1880s, which had really pioneered the use of steel frame construction and had even earned George Fuller the sort of honorary title of being the, quote, inventor of the modern skyscraper. And his firm, the Fuller Company, along with the architect Daniel Burnham, were instrumental in the development of the Columbian World Exposition of 1893, the Chicago World's Fair. Mm -hmm. So they were big deal developers by this time. And by 1901, their company, the Fuller Company, which had been based in Chicago, decided to build their New York headquarters right here at 23rd and 5th Avenue on that funny plot of land that was shaped like a triangle or shaped like an antique clothes iron 
This new building was designed by Burnham, along with Frederick Dinkelberg. And thanks to that, you know, steel frame construction, it was able to rise 20 stories into the air, and it went up quickly. It was finished and opened in 1902, um, and then covered in limestone and terracotta. It's a gorgeous building, obviously. And although it was technically named the Fuller Building, it quickly became known around the city and really around the world as the Flatiron Building. I love that they were showing off a little bit. Like they were they were coming in saying our first building is going to be on this strange plot of land, right? right? And it's going to almost immediately become an iconic part of the New York landscape. Yeah. You know, as in like it actually like represents Madison Square Park. When you search for photos of Madison Square Park, it's almost hard not to find photos that include the flat iron in them. Either the Statue of Liberty's arm or the flat yes. iron. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the public agreed. The public found it gorgeous as well. Although there was, early on, a generally held fear that maybe, you know, that shape created a kind of instability. How could it even stand up? How could it go so high and be so narrow, you know, at its corners? People were afraid that the building itself mm-hmm. could blow over. It was just so dainty and pretty. How could it stand? Yeah, I mean, New Yorkers knew it had been constructed with a steel skeleton, not what they were used to with an old-fashioned thick masonry walls. There just weren't that many steel buildings at this time. And so everybody feared what would happen, you know, if a big storm, a big windy storm blew into town, which is exactly what happened on September 16th, 1903, just a year after the Flatiron had opened. Wind gusts that were stronger than anyone could remember ripped through the area, and all eyes turned toward Madison Square. From the next day's New York Sun, quote, The Flatiron Building weathered the storm in great shape yesterday. A great deal of fiction has gotten into print about the skyscraper, but the hardest roast it ever got came yesterday from an evening paper which solemnly said that the storm had broken every window in the building and that the tenants were moving out. The manufacturers of glass will no doubt be pained to hear that the first part of this yarn is untrue and so is the second part. Pained to hear. Did did I just sense a pun in the New York Sun? I'm very impressed by that writer. However, even smaller winds, you know, we experience them today. They could come ripping around that intersection. Oh, yeah. Uh, back then, you know, sometimes even blowing up women's skirts to, you know, reveal their legs, which was very scandalous. And according to legend, led to the popularization of the phrase... 23 skidoo. Right, because policemen allegedly patrolled that intersection, pushing male onlookers away with their sticks, you know, giving them the old, quote, 23rd Street skidoo. (laughs) Um, But despite all of these corny antics taking (laughs) place here at the Flatiron, the completion of the Flatiron building also signaled a more business-focused era for the park and for the neighborhood. This had been the hub of society, as you mentioned, during the Gilded Age. But now, in early years of the 20th century, the park was now anchored by a construction company. Mm-hmm. And the whole area had started to attract more office buildings and small manufacturing you know, factories, um, especially in the garment trade. 
This would be something that some Fifth Avenue business owners who, you know, wanted to keep that upscale, luxurious vibe that was mm-hmm. going on here, they attempted to fight it off. And they were actually successful in pushing much of the garment industry away, of course, north and west between 23rd and 34th, and that old notorious tenderloin area. Like, they could have the garment industry, but, like, let's keep it fancy around here. Yeah, but they they couldn't keep, you know, high society from marching farther up Fifth Avenue. The Flatiron opened in 1902, but Mrs. Astor had already built her new mansion on 65th and Fifth Avenue in 1896. By the time mm-hmm. that the Flatiron opened, the area north of 42nd Street was already home, you know, to new theaters. The, the city was moving up. Although, you know, some entertainment was still around here in the early 20th century, including, of course, obviously, Madison Square Garden. Sure, but even they couldn't ignore, you know, that things were becoming more businessy all around it, right? Even before the Flatiron opened, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company had opened an 11-story office building just off the park in 1893, actually on the part of the block that faces Park Avenue between 23rd and 24th Street. But that building, that 11-story building, would not be enough for such a growing company. Well, I was going to say, just as insurance companies today use catchy mascots to promote their insurance companies. Back in the day, they used skyscrapers. Ah, yeah. So while I'm sure that old building was great, they needed something bolder. And taller. And and they wanted it right there, adjoining their offices that they had already built. But there was just one problem. The Madison Square Presbyterian Church was already there. And its minister, the Reverend Parkhurst, um, had been railing against the vice, you know, that was taking place in brothels all over the neighborhood from his pulpit in his church. Oh, yeah. We did a whole show on Dr. Parkhurst's campaign, his exploratory voyages into Mm -hmm. the underworld uh, back in a show in 2021. But this was an important church. I mean, you can't just move a church. You can't roll this on logs anywhere, <laughs> can you? <laughs> well, if you're MetLife, maybe you can pay them to move, um, uh, which yeah. is exactly what happened. Um, the church, which was you know right up against their other building there, had been sensing the pressure and sensing how the neighborhood had been changing. And so they sold out to Met- Metropolitan Life Insurance, which then demolished the Gothic Revival Church, and in its place, the architectural firm of Napoleon Lebron and Sons designed a 700-foot marble-covered tower that was modeled after the Campanile Tower in the Piazza San Marco in Venice. Although I should add that at 49 floors tall, Greg, this tower is more than twice as big as the, <laughs> as the Venetian Tower in St. Mark's Square. And unlike the Flatiron, this had a clock on it. Very practical, yes. So the Flatiron opened in 1902. The MetLife Tower construction began in 1905 and was completed four years later in 1909. And when it opened, it was the tallest building in the world. And it would hold that title for four years until 1913, when that pesky Woolworth building took over. <laughs> but whatever happened to the Madison Square Presbyterian Church that had once been here? Did they move? Did they just close up shop forever? 
No, they actually jumped across 24th Street and, and stayed on the park. And in 1906, they built a new church with a giant dome and Greek columns out front and uh, was constructed for, you know, the, a whopping sum of $500,000. But, I mean, that church isn't there either today. No, because MetLife soon needed to expand again. So, in 1919, the company purchased and demolished that church in order to construct an annex building across 24th Street. And then, from the late 20s until 1950, they would also construct another massive office building on that same block called the North Building, which would actually swallow up that old annex building. And it still stands there today. It's home to Credit Suisse as well as offices for Sony. It's almost like the church needed insurance for the encroaching <laughs> development. <laughs> Do they sell that kind of insurance today? They should. Well, I think that they, they were paid handsomely for the inconvenience. So let's do a rundown here, okay? By the year 1920, on this eastern side of Madison Square, you had, moving from south to north, starting at 23rd Street, you had the Metropolitan Life Tower. Then you had Madison Square Presbyterian Church, which by the following decade would be gone forever and replaced by the MetLife North Building. Then... We should note that north of that, you had the Appellate Division Courthouse, which was built in 1899 and is the home of the New York Supreme Court's Appellate Division. Then, north of that, you had the mansion of Leonard Jerome, which was still hanging around here. Mm -hmm. And then across the street from that, you, have, you still have Madison Square Garden. Yes, which would continue operating until 1925. The Daily News reported on May 6, 1925, Madison Square Garden, Manhattan's most interesting landmark, today is being converted into ruins. A bit of old New York that holds a rich lore of great events, dramatic and tragic, passes into history. A new iteration of Madison Square Garden a few miles away from Madison Square, would open on 8th Avenue and 50th Street and would become even more associated with sporting events, in particular boxing, basketball, and hockey. And so what ended up replacing the old garden here? The mortgage on the garden here was held by another insurance company, the New York Life Insurance Company. And, you know, maybe they were casting an eye down the block at MetLife, but they decided to build themselves a new headquarters right here on the spot. And so Cass Gilbert, the architect of the Woolworth Building downtown, designed a 34-story office tower right here on the spot of the old Madison Square Garden, topped with a golden, a gilded, you know, six-story pointed rooftop, the building was completed and opened in 1928. And I must say that gold roof is very eye-catching. Oh, it pops. It draws your eye right there to the spot of the old Madison Square Garden and to the old New York and Harlem Depot. And New York life still occupies the building today. But by the time it opened, just before the Depression, Madison Square and its park had really been completely transformed. By the 1930s, the center of cultural life in the city had long 
before moved on. Mm-hmm. But the park did adopt a personality more akin to Union Square and Washington Square as a place of protest and rallying, even at times seeing contentious gatherings between protesters and police. Perhaps one of the most significant mass gatherings here at Madison Square occurred on July 30th, 1944, drawing many thousands of Jewish Americans who heard a speech from several officials and even a telegram from President Roosevelt from the New York Times, quote, declaring its fear that by the time the war had been won, the largest part of the Jewish population of Europe will have been extinguished. A mass meeting of 40,000 American Jews gathered in Madison Square Park yesterday afternoon, adopting a resolution embodying a program for saving as many Jews in the Nazi-occupied territories as possible, unquote. And there were many, many more gatherings of this type well into the 1950s and 60s. So on one hand, this demonstrates that the park has become even more of a people's park, you know, by this time not an elite spot like it was in the Gilded Age days. But by this time, 70 to 80 years after this redesign that you had mentioned, I wonder if the park was kind of falling apart a bit. It was beat up. It was in pretty deplorable condition by the 1930s. There had been many plans to improve it over the decades, but few of them were carried out. And so that left the park vulnerable to more, shall we say, destructive ideas. For instance, in the 1960s, they almost constructed a parking garage underneath the park, a project which would have closed the park for uh, several years. The neighborhood did successfully push back because of the trees, right? Many of the trees Mm. here were over a century old, even much older than that. And those trees would have been damaged or uprooted. Many thought it would make traffic and congestion worse for the area. To quote one letter writer from the New York Times, quote, what New York City now needs is not to attract more private cars to this midtown section, but to discourage them. Unquote. Did you say this was from 1960, from like 60 years ago? This is extremely modern. I mean, that, that <laughs> yeah, could have been uh-huh. written six months ago. What goes around comes around with these ideas. Meanwhile, other catastrophic changes were occurring around the park, as you can imagine, in the 60s and 70s. Believe it or not, that old Leonard Jerome mansion of the Cologne and Champagne Fountains, was still sitting at 26 in Madison. But in 1967, it was slated for demolition. It's kind of a miracle that it was still standing at that point. But at least by 1967, right, it had the newly formed Landmarks Preservation Commission to help protect it. And they tried to save it. They really did. They even designated it for preservation and desperately searched for a new owner to come in and sort of be the hero here. You know, the exact same battle was occurring just a few blocks downtown at the old Astor Library, another centuries-old building that was about to be demolished. In that case, they found a buyer in the form of theater impresario Joe Papp. Mm -hmm. But the Jerome Mansion... And its former fountains, no such luck. From the New York Times, October 5th, 1967, quote, The 100-year-old Madison Square home of Leonard Jerome, Sir Winston Churchill's grandfather, 
will be raised to make way for a skyscraper, unquote. Alas, there was no Calvin Klein escape (laughs) for the Jerome Mansion. Today, that's the spot where the glass-towered New York Merchandise Mart now stands. Mm -hmm. Now, a very tragic incident occurred on the south side of the park just a year before, on the opposite side of the street at the corner of 23rd and Broadway. An art gallery on 22nd Street had caught fire on the evening of October 17, 1966. Firefighters attempted to battle the blaze by actually entering a store on the 23rd side, a store called Wonder Drugs. But unfortunately, the fire had spread through the shared cellar area, weakening the floor within the drugstore. The floor collapsed beneath the men and threw them into the inferno below. In all, 12 firefighters died in this terrible tragedy, the greatest loss of life in the New York Fire Department's history before September 11th, 2001. And on the building that stands there today, there's a plaque that pays honor to those who died in this terrible blaze. Now, there's one more big change to the surrounding area that I want to mention, and that is the site of the Fifth Avenue Hotel, or should I say the former site for back in 1909 as a reflection of the whole sort of business-like direction that was happening here in the area. The hotel was replaced by an office building that, by the mid-20th century, was dominated by toy companies who gradually pretty much took over this side of the park. And today, the whole complex is known as the International Toy Center. To quote from the website Toy Tales, trade ads at the time referred to the building as the toy center of the world and the street it was located on as the Street of the Toy Makers. The center housed showrooms for every major toy company in the United States, including major industry players like Kenner, Tonka, Hasbro, and Mattel, unquote. Now, I'd like to take us back into the park during the 1990s, a decade of tremendous transition. By this moment, the whole neighborhood had slipped greatly from prominence, and by the late 1980s, the park was perhaps best known as the site of drug deals. And there was even a homeless encampment here at the park when the city forced people out of other parks. And so there was no other place for them to go. So they they came here. Many of the former hotels around the block, meanwhile, well, they had long since closed, of course, and many turned into shelters for homeless families. Hotels such as the Prince George up on East 27th Street, one block north, which was built in 1904, but by this time was now a homeless shelter and took in thousands of people in the 1980s. So Madison Square Park then was really reflecting a lot of the problems and challenges that the entire city was facing. But the park, by the mid and late 90s, would bounce back. In 1997, a real effort was made to restore the park, thanks to a nonprofit organization called the City Parks Foundation, which had formed for the needs of all city parks in 1989, and then brought together these private and public funders to rehabilitate Madison Square Park to the condition that we more or less see today, and that work was completed in 2001. 
Among the features were a rehabilitated fountain on the southern end, and then that reflecting pool was constructed on the north side. And not to diminish the work of the the many activists, city planners, and architects who all worked tirelessly to restore the park, I do want to focus on one contributor to the restoration efforts, a restaurateur named Danny Meyer. Ah, restaurant icon, I think you could say. Danny Meyer, who by the mid-1990s was already quite famous, right, for two other... Mm -hmm. Hot restaurants in the area, the Union Square Cafe and the Gramercy Tavern. So Meyer obviously believed in this whole area, and just his presence alone propelled Madison Square and the whole area of the Flatiron District propelled it as a sort of hot foodie destination by the late 1990s. In 1998, he opened 11 Madison Park on the ground floor of the MetLife North Building, To this day, it remains one of New York's most famous and exclusive restaurants. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm still waiting to get a table. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, I think so. (laughs) And we almost have the same last name. (laughs) Although Danny Meyer is no longer involved, although the the restaurant is still going strong, still sort of the gold standard of eateries in New York. Not that we would know that firsthand. <laughs> no. But we are familiar, however, with another Danny Meyer project within the park. Mm-hmm. For in 2001, he hosted an upscale hot dog stand in <laughs> Madison Square, which morphed by the year 2004 into a food shack known appropriately as the Shake Shack. Today, there are 400 Shake Shacks around the world, including... Maybe for many people, you know the one at JFK International oh, Airport. I know it well. <laughs> I know. But they all got their start here at the southeast corner of Madison Square Park. They are truly everywhere. People are gobbling down Shake Shack hot dogs and slurping down milkshakes, you know, and Shake Shacks from London to Tokyo. And I would bet, Greg, that most of them, maybe even 99% of them, are not aware of the shack's contribution to the rehabilitation of Madison Square Park. I'm sure most people are not aware of that, but it's true. You know, in fact, to close out our show here, let's do a very brief walk virtually around the park, starting, as we've often done, starting here at the Shake Shack on the southeast corner of the park, okay? We walk in that entrance, standing at the Shake Shack... Grab some crinkle fries, maybe a little ketchup. Waiting in line for 15 minutes, whatever. Yes. So standing nearby you as you're like eating your crinkle fries is a bronze statue of a very stern man that we have discussed on the show many times. The Republican political boss, Roscoe Conkling, who was frequently at and regularly in charge of those backroom meetings over at the Fifth Avenue Hotel. Now, the statue by John Quincy Adams Ward was erected on this corner in 1893, but there's a sort of a dark story to this, unfortunately. For Conkling died five years previous during the brutal blizzard of 1888, trying to make his way back to a club, a social club that was nearby this spot, but he collapsed, unfortunately, in Union Square and then died later. So why is he standing here? 
Well, to be perfectly blunt, this is their thoughts, not my own. He wasn't important enough for Union Square. To quote from a 1908 journal, quote, The question was then very naturally raised as to how important a man must be in order to be truthfully called a, quote, great American and be worthy of having his monument placed in a public square of the great city, unquote. Union Square at this time already had George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and the Marquis de Lafayette, okay? The Parks Commissioners determined that Conkling did not deserve to be placed in that fellowship, and so instead they placed him here at the southeastern entrance, okay? Now, that is a little unfair to the other men who are depicted in statues in the park, perhaps most especially to the man who was sitting at the southwest corner of the park and has sat there since 1876, the former New York governor and Lincoln's secretary of state, William Seward. William Seward was a great man. Um, Maybe not, you know, in the same league as his as his old boss, Abe, but still great. And we should point out that there is, strangely, no statue to Seward at the park that actually bears his name, Seward Park, down on the Lower East Side. (laughs) No, and and no one's thought to move him from this spot. So (laughs) they'll have to build another one. (laughs) Well, he is right there by the old Fifth Avenue Hotel, where he's, you know, as a Republican, spent quite a bit of time. Yes. Now, walking north along the western end of the park here, you'll see the Eternal Light Flagstaff, topped with a star-shaped lumiere in memory of those who died during World War One. I, however, never seem to pay too much attention to that star because of what stands next to it. Jemmy's Dog Run, New York's, <laughs> one of New York City's best small dog runs. I'm not kidding you. It really mm-hmm. is spectacular. The park was actually famous in the early 90s for having dogs running around without leashes, mm. which, you know, there was a, lo- there was a law. <laughs> Those were the old days. <laughs> <laughs> but the city started cracking down in the early 90s on these rampant dogs. In fact, famously, John F. Kennedy Jr., got Mm -hmm. a ticket from the city in 1994 for having his dog out without a leash. And of course, you know, considering the tabloids of the, of the day that made all the headlines. That was big news in 94, but given, (laughs) yes, (laughs) but given that this is, you know, the spot where the Westminster dog show was born was first held in the city. I think it's fair to give the, you know, dogs their own sort of glamorous dog run right here in the park. (laughs) Maybe a future best in show winner will be running around there right now. Who knows? Perhaps. Now, if you walk inward and towards the northern side of the park, you'll pass the Great Lawn, which is often the site of some extraordinary art installations, at least since the first one in 2001. Today, the Great Lawn is maintained, as are many aspects of the park, by the Madison Square Park Conservancy, which formed in 2003. Finally, on the northern end of the park, on the other side of the playground and the reflecting pool, you'll find two statues. The first is an 1881 monument to Admiral David Glasgow Farragut, designed by Stanford White and Augustus St. Gaudens in his first public commission. The second statue stands over the northeast corner of the park, a statue of our 21st president, Chester A. Arthur. Chester A. Arthur, New Yorker. 
and was actually sworn in for office a, a few blocks away. But on a final note here, I want to lead us out of the park into those blocks north of Madison Square. Or today known as Nomad. Cute nickname aside, this area north and slightly west of the park was made a distinct historic district in 2001 due to so many of those historic hotels and social club buildings that remain intact. And this has led to a new wave of boutique hotels, fabulous restaurants, and even several rooftop bars in a nod to the old Madison Square Garden. That name, by the way, Nomad, was first used in the New York Times in 1999. Really? Wow. For more than 20 years, I I still haven't really gotten used to it. Do you call it Nomad? I begrudgingly call it that now. Because I often go there now, actually. It's it's a True. fun place. In 2012, Adam Sternberg of New York Magazine wrote, quote, How do you make a neighborhood? Can you conjure one out of thin air? If the crowds at the Ace Hotel are any evidence, then yes, you can. Sort of. At least for a moment. The Ace opened officially one year ago, and it's now the heart of the district called Nomad, insofar as any such neighborhood exists. Like Never Neverland, Nomad is a place that can only be visited if you believe in it hard enough, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> I love that quote. Well, I believe in it. I mean, at least yes. now I do. And I remember, I mean, it was a big deal when the Ace opened. And like you yes, could uh-huh. go and have coffee or drinks and cocktails, you know. In, in Manhattans. This, yeah. In Manhattans, in this fabulous old school space. I mean, that was a big deal. And mm-hmm. um, and I even stayed at the James Hotel when I was in town for the Halloween show. So mm-hmm. I stayed in Nomad, Greg. So, I mean, really what's extraordinary is that today's area, you know, around Madison Square Park is really in many ways a throwback to the Madison Square of the 1880s. Except that there are subways and cars and... Lady Liberty took her arm with her. (laughs) For more information, we highly recommend visiting the website of the Madison Square Park Conservancy and also the site of the Flatiron Nomad Partnership. And we have a little challenge for you, listener. If you've made it this far, um, (laughs) we (laughs) we think you might enjoy this. Head over to Madison Square Park and the area, Flatiron Nomad. If you live there or you're visiting... Post images on your preferred social media of choice and tag us, okay? That's Bowery Boys on Twitter and Threads, Bowery Boys NYC on Instagram. You know, look us up. We will share as many images and videos of Madison Square Park as you send us. And of course, head over to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We'll have many images of the park, past and present, many from actually our own past, Greg, because You once lived there and worked there. Yeah, back in the pre-nomad period, uh, (laughs) yeah, I did live there. In fact, if you want to hear Tom and I talk more about Madison Square Park, if you uh, (laughs) can't imagine that, but yes. This podcast isn't long enough. Actually, join us on Patreon.com, where where we release our Patreon-only show called Side Streets. And this latest episode will be our adventures in Madison Square Park, Nomad, Flatiron, and the whole area. Mm. And we did have some adventures, didn't we, Tom? (laughs) 
I believe that you saw a big budget Hollywood monster movie that was being filmed in the park in the mid 1990s, if I recall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and maybe I think we'll you... talk about a little place called Champs. Oh, we're going to talk about champs on Side Street. That's, Whoa. That's, that, that's Flatiron that's flat District. You can hear that and more by joining us over at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Thanks to everyone who supports us there with a small monthly donation. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you also to those of you who have joined us in the streets over at BoweryBoysWalks.com. Our professional, fabulous tour guides lead small group walking tours open to the general public and for private groups and organizations of all different neighborhoods of New York City, including a tour around the Madison Square Park area. We have new tours that we're rolling out this spring, and we're very excited to announce them. So you can see the latest tours along with the hottest tours in town, the Gilded Age Mansions of Fifth Avenue tours. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to join us in the streets and walk through time. So thank you very much for joining us on this like in-depth history of Madison Square Park. <laughs> we just couldn't help we couldn't, we couldn't help ourselves. We could not help ourselves with this. So it's it's too much a part of our existence in the city. And finally, portions of the show were edited by Kieran Gannon. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.